We'll dismiss Kingdom Kids to the foyer. We've got a teacher, helper back there. Uh, so if you're ages four through nine, they've got uh, a special program for your age. It's over at our CE Center. They're going to walk them over there. And parents, you want to head over there right after the service to pick, pick them up. Today we're uh, starting a new series of sermons from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's titled, Who Will Be King? And why are we calling it that? Well, maybe you know the, some of this. This part of the Bible records the period of history when Israel went from being a loose collection of 12 tribes to becoming a unified nation under a king. They had common ancestry, but it was still... Uh, still a loose sort of thing, becoming a unified nation under a king. Now, before I went to seminary, I was a history teacher by training, and I know the stereotype, history, boring, you know, just names and dates, old stuff that doesn't matter today. Why should we, why should we care when, how, or why Israel became a monarchy? Well, this is just one chapter of an even bigger story that you and I are a part of. We've been saying this quite a bit in the month of December in our Advent series. We exist because God made us to bring Him glory within His creation. This is His world. And we have turned away from God and are suffering the consequences, both now and one day when there will be a final reckoning, final justice. And folks, if there is final judgment... We're, we're all doomed. We're all damned. But God. But God promised a way of redemption, of salvation, to reconcile us to himself, uh, to, to restore us to life and peace, to glory. How is God going to do that? Well, the story of a redeemed people out of all humankind begins with a particular people. That's the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. It's, it's kind of like uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings starts out in the Shire. You know, the, this whole sweeping epic that includes all these different peoples and places, a, a huge battle of good and evil, but it starts out in a small, out-of-the-way place with ordinary people. Now, of course, Tolkien is writing fantasy. This is history, but it's the same in the sense that sometimes the things that, that change the world, that turn the course of history, start out in out-of-the-way places with ordinary people with ordinary problems. Any, any ordinary people with ordinary problems today? Uh, here's a message of hope for us. Here's the theme for today. It's our next slide. Can we get that? Thank you. God's plan to bless often hinges on the prayers of the brokenhearted. God's plan to bless, to do good, to redeem, to restore. God's plan to bless often hinges on the prayers of the brokenhearted. I'd love for God to use this as we, of course, have new... When I, when I was thinking, when I wrote that, that was before even the, the, our recent drama. It was just one more thing, right? One more way is that we feel what it's like to be brokenhearted. Uh, we're going to cover this chap chapter 1 in three parts, and let's just start by reading verses 1 through 8. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. 
There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? This is part one this morning. Barren and broken. And I've got a question for you in each of our points today. Do you struggle to make sense of your suffering within God's sovereignty? Yeah, <laughs> I already, the answer I've already, we can already answer, a question we can already answer. Do you struggle to make sense of your suffering within God's sovereignty? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question necessarily in this point. I'm just trying to help us all, like we're all here. We're all here. And maybe looking at Hannah's story will help us understand where we're at, where you're at, maybe you're at today. So let's look at this troubled household. We're introduced to Elkanah, where he's from, that he has two wives, one with children, one without. There, there's the setup. There's the problem right there. But already you may be wondering, like, wait a minute, is the Bible okay with this, you know, situation, this polygamy, it doesn't come right out and say it's wrong, which may be confusing to us. But this is just the first of many times that we're going to see in uh, going through this series in 1 Samuel. We're going to need to remember a basic principle of biblical interpretation. Maybe you've heard this already. Uh, Sometimes the Bible is simply descriptive. This is how it was, not prescriptive. This is how it ought to be. So you got to understand the difference between when the Bible is being descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive, this is how it was back then. This is what they did. Mm, uh, this is what you should do. This is what they should have done. This is what you should do. you got to understand the difference. We'll see that even more than one ways in this passage. Well, I mean, here's a simple example. It never comes out and says, Panina was wrong to provoke her grievously. We just, we just know that that's wrong, Right? And how do we know that that's wrong? From other ways that Scripture speaks of how we should treat one another. All right? So it's not that hard. Um, We're expected to remember the prescriptive teaching of Genesis 2.24, which we mentioned a few weeks ago was affirmed by Jesus, that in marriage, to become one, a a man and a woman. So we should not, if that's the way it's supposed to be, if that's the prescription, uh, then we shouldn't be surprised at all to find that Elkanah, has a dysfunctional family, right? It's not going so good. But here's the thing. Don't just then write them off as ah, bad people. See, in fact, this, this is taking place just after the book of Judges, which was a time when many Israelites were unfaithful to God. But 
as for Elkanah in his house, they would serve the Lord. And they're here faithfully, faithful to make the annual trip required by the law of Moses to come before the Lord at the tabernacle set up in Shiloh, uh, even though, as we're going to see in coming chapters, even though the to put it in our language, the church, the institution, the religious authorities of that time were a mess. And yet here's simple people, ordinary people, coming, trying to be faithful, coming before the Lord in worship. With all their offerings of worship and thanksgivings for all that God provided. When it talks about the portions uh, uh, that he gave to Peninnah and her children and to Hannah, the, the this points to the fact that the, the worship they were involved in um, was the kind of, of offering that would be given in thanks for all that God provided for, his, for Elkanah's family over the year. We'll come and we give a portion of that back to God, but in bringing uh, portions of meat and of, of grain, of bread, some of that would be eaten by the worshipers. So it was really like coming around the Lord's table in a, in a sense. For, and, and again, in their situation, this is long before Christ, long before communion per se, but there's a lot of overlap coming around the Lord's table to say, because of the sacrifice that you have provided for sin, we're able to come around your table to be in fellowship with you once more. If you're looking for a, a simple story here to, that it's clear who the heroes and villains are. This is more complex and more true to life. I, I dare say that this is what this room is like. People faithful in so many ways, probably blind to, some, to other ways that we've adapted to our culture, like Elkanah and his uh, multiple wives. Maybe an, another generation from now, it'll be glaringly obvious. Like, why did those people back in 2023, how did they not see it? Here's where we are. We should, that doesn't mean we excuse that kind of sin, but it also means we don't give up hope that God can work in a people that are still flawed and still broken, people like them, people like us. Now, one of the painful consequences of Elkanah's sin of polygamy, it naturally created a rivalry, particularly in light of Hannah's infertility. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that that that, that that sin caused Hannah to be unable to conceive. It just made it worse, right? They, back then, think about it, they didn't, they didn't even need, in Elkanah's situation, they didn't need modern medicine to figure out who was the problem. So is it Elkanah or is it Hannah that's the problem? Well, Peninnah's over there popping them out. Um, it's not Elkanah. It's not Peninnah. Hannah. Hannah, what's wrong with you? Hannah's saying, what's wrong with me? What's, what is, what's wrong with me? What's the, I'm, the prob, I'm the problem. Elkanah still loves Hannah, tries to encourage her, and it, it does sound a little boneheaded to say, isn't, isn't, I, am I not enough for you? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? He, he, he couldn't take away her pain. He couldn't take away her fear, her doubt, the insecurity that she must have felt. Some of you know this very personally because you've gone through this specific pain of infertility. But that's not the only way you could identify with, with her suffering here this morning. Maybe, maybe your dyslexia kept you from getting the grades that came easy to others. Maybe your body type meant that nobody picked you for their playground team or, or 
uh, asked you to prom. Maybe your limited skill set means you're never getting the job or a pay that's better than what you have right now. Maybe you have a condition that's going to impair you, slow you down for the rest of your life, maybe even slowly take away your life. The people who love you may try to come alongside and encourage you. Well, you're not, you're not disabled, you're just differently abled. But you feel you're like, thanks, but you just feel like you're the broken toy that nobody wants, that just doesn't work. The word barren isn't used in this passage, but it is used elsewhere in Scripture. It's just an ancient way of thinking about a woman who couldn't bear children. Just it felt like a wasteland, like a, like a lifeless, hopeless desert place. Do you know what that feels like? On top of that, in some ways, these situations can be even harder for believers, even harder for people who know God. See, if you, if you don't believe in God, I mean, what do you say? It's just you chalk it up to bad luck. Uh, you know, we're, we're caught in this meaningless chaos of a universe and, well, survival of the fittest. But then if you believe in God, you, you believe in an almighty, all-good, all-loving God, and you're thinking, hey, hey, God, why are you doing this to me? Don't you love me? And the, the text here puts it very, very matter-of-factly, verse 5 again, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Excuse me, I meant to read verse 5, but Hannah... Uh, he gave Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb twice there. Now, notice this is the, the narrator, so to speak, using this phrase, just, just saying how it is. The Lord closed her womb. Now, that's important because if it was just Elkanah saying this or Peninnah saying this, we might chalk it up to being, what we, what we said earlier, descriptive. Like, well, that's what they thought. That, that, that was how they put it. It was, just, it was their opinion, but it was a wrong interpretation of the facts. The Lord, Lord wouldn't do that. He, he can't do that. Well, this instead reflects the consistent biblical teaching that nothing happens apart from God's power and God's purpose. But again, that only makes it harder for us to wrestle with. We can say, and this is true, we can say that things like infertility like multiple sclerosis, like muscular dystrophy. We can say that these are part of living in a fallen, broken world. We have to accept the, and, and I guess we just have to accept the brokenness of our bodies. We can, we can say that. And as a, that's the part of the, the broader consequences of the, our human rebellion against God. And here we are. Cancer happens. Car accidents happen. At the same time, we have to say, Nothing happens apart from God's control. No misfortune, no accident, no evil happens outside his providence. So no matter what happens, we're, see what this means, no matter what happens, we're left wrestling with God. God, why would you let this happen to me? God, how could this be part of your bigger plan for me when I've been faithful to serve you, faithful to worship you? Hannah could have said that. God, how can you, maybe these kind of prayers go, these thoughts go through your head. God, how can you let so many godless people enjoy financial success and, and romantic relationships and a happy family while I'm barren and broken? 
God, do you love me? So the, like I said, the question we pose here is one we already know the answer to. Do you struggle to make sense of your suffering within God's sovereignty? Of course we do. At least take this. At this point in the sermon, you're not alone. <laughs> this is why you need this passage today. First to see that all genuine believers will suffer the struggle to st- and there, we can see in their story the struggle to stay faithful in times of cultural and moral decline. We can see the brokenness of our bodies, the insults of others, even within a family, questions about God, doubts about whether his purposes are good. So the question is, well, what are you going to do with all that? What are you going to do with all that? All the questions, all the confusions, where will you turn? To whom will you go? Hannah went to God. Hannah went to God with it. So back up to verse 3, and I'm going to read further than we did earlier. So now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. We'll stop there. This is part two, prayer and promise. And the question is back to you. Will you pour out your soul to God as you cling to his covenant? Now, that, might not, that last part might not be obvious. We'll get there. In her pain, Hannah could have lashed out at Elkanah or Peninnah. Peninnah is certainly slinging words at Hannah. She probably thought of some few words that she could throw right back at, at her. She, she could have said to Elkanah, you know what? I'm staying home. I don't have anything to thank God for. Why should I worship him? <laughs> 
Instead, after their worship, and after being reminded of her childish, childlessness again, she goes back to the tabernacle, back to God, and in her pain, she weeps and prays. She prays and she weeps. And you can, you can tell this is more than a, a few sniffles, a little, a little dabbing of the corner of the eyes. The, the priest thinks she's drunk. Now, that's, he sa- it says here in the text that that's primarily because she's praying silently, but she's mouthing the words. But, but you have to know that it's more than just a, if this was just a, a, a quiet, gentle little a moment of lips moving, that's not going to get his attention. Surely she must have been praying fervently, feverishly. She explains to Eli, I am praying in agony. If I seem a little unhinged, it's because I'm, I'm falling apart. I'm a broken woman. I want you to see that that combination of weeping and praying is how she puts together her suffering, and God's sovereignty. Not, God's in control, so why bother praying? He's just going to do what he's going to do. Not, God's in control, and I hate him for what he's doing in my life. If you asked Hannah, why, why do you even want to pray? Why, why do you want to pray to this God who closed your womb? She might have said, well, because he's the only one who can open it. That would be true. That would be reason enough. But I think there's even more. There's even more that we can see in this passage. We, you can see it in how Hannah prays. Back to verses, verse 10 and 11. Uh, again, look at verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, that's not all she prayed, the quote we have there in verse 11. As you can see from the next verse, it said she continues on praying. But this is the key piece. This is the money quote. This is what we get from what she said. Now, the first thing most people see in verse 11 is it seems like Hannah's trying to bargain with God. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. Now, I don't think Hannah's bargaining with God. We're going to come back to that if-then thing uh, in the next point. Most important thing, though, I think that we need to see in verse 11 is that her appeal to God is grounded in his covenant relationship with his people. You see this in a few ways. First, she uses the particular name of God, the Lord there, if you're looking at the text, Lord in all capital letters shows it is translating the Hebrew Yahweh. That is that the I am, I am who I am, the, the very personal covenant name of God that he revealed to his people, Israel, back when they were enslaved, enslaved in Egypt. And it's clear that Hannah is thinking about that time, that context, that setting, uh, this, because she echoes the same chapter in the book of Exodus where God reveals his covenant name, I am, Yahweh. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, 
and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you hear the connection? The Lord says to Israel and Egypt, I have seen your affliction. Hannah's saying, hey, you are the God who saw the affliction of our ancestors and you delivered them from bondage and slavery because of your commitment to your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look on my affliction. Lord, you saw their affliction. Look on my affliction. Deliver me. Remember me. Uh, that's, that's even more covenant language when she says, ask God to remember her and not forget her. That's covenantal language throughout the Old Testament. And the way she repeatedly identifies herself as your servant. God, I am your servant. Talking about her and herself in the third person. Your servant, if your servant will do this, if your servant, if you would just do this for your servant. See, see there's, what, what that signifies is there's a relationship here between Hannah and the Lord. They, they are not peers, they are not equals, the servant can't tell the king what to do, but the king is supposed to take care of his servants, to provide for the servants in his household. I mean, another covenant connection. You, on top of that, we, we shouldn't figure, forget the way that Hannah's barrenness echoes that of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, God's promising to make them a, a, a great nation, a numerous people, and yet barrenness, infertility seem to be a problem, a perennial problem for God's people. And, and here is Hannah in the same place. In fact, if we, we think about Elkanah's comment, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? Could be a way of pointing back to Jacob's love for Rachel who was still childless even after Jacob had ten sons by other women. But in the end, what, did, what was it said of Rachel? This is Genesis 30, 22 and 23. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and, and, and said, Rachel said, God has taken away my reproach. It's not enough to play, just to play connect the dots in the Bible. When you, it's no, no fun to play connect the dots unless you come up with a picture at the end, right? That's the payoff. Now, we could connect all kinds of dots in the Bible, but if we don't see the picture at the end of a God who is working in all kinds of situations through all kinds of troubled people to bring about something beautiful. Something that's just not a scattered collection of data points, of dots, but something that is, that comes into focus. It's a picture of his faithfulness to his people. It's a portrait of God, a God who keeps his promises. And if that's who he is, he's the one you want to pour out your soul to. He's the one that you you got to take your needs, your hurts, your fears to, clinging to his covenant, clinging to his promises, clinging to the God who makes and keeps his promises. How do you do that? Well, we're, we're again, we're in a different situation than the folks back in the time of uh, this book being written, the stories that are here in this book. To here, of course, on, our, on this side of the cross, on this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our relationship with God is, starts right there, faith in Christ. And if you have that faith 
in Christ, then God has promised to be with you. He's promised to bless you. He's promised to take care of you. So yes, we don't, we don't pray to God as if, as if I am the king, that, that, I, that I get to give the orders, that I'm in charge. No, he is Lord. But can, you can say, but I'm your servant. But, but I, I, we have a relationship here. I know I don't, I don't get to order you around, but, but I belong to you. Isn't, isn't there some obligation that, that you have, not because I've obligated you, but because you've obligated yourself to me when you've made that promise? to be my Savior, to be my King, to be my Redeemer. And when you pray that way, when you pray boldly expecting Him to take care of you, pour, then, then just let it out. Just pour out your soul, remembering those he's, who He's already delivered, answering the prayers of His people suffering in Egypt, answering Rachel's prayer, and as we'll see in a moment, answering Hannah's prayer, and trusting that if, he've, if he's already answered your prayer to, to forgive you of your sins, to save you because of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, then he will hear your prayers for all your other lesser but painful needs as well. You can bank on it. So the question is, are you going to hold all that pain, all your suffering bottled up just inside? Are you going to take all your confusion about how do I put my suffering with God's sovereignty? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push God away because I don't, I, don't, I, can't, I don't understand it. I don't like it. Or will you pour out your soul to God as you cling to his covenant? Keep your promise to bless. Keep your promise to redeem. Keep your promise to restore me. I'm holding on. Let's go back to the text. I'm going to back up again to verse 17. Start there and we'll finish the chapter. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning, that is Elkanah, Peninnah, Hannah, Peninnah's children. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So we're a year later. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent 
to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the last part this morning. Gift and giver. And again, this question is for you. Since God has given you all that you have, will you give it all back to him? God answered Hannah's prayer, and Hannah keeps her vow. Or should we say, she keeps her end of the bargain? From what we've already seen as the the covenant foundation for her prayer, uh, that's not what was going on. Not making deals here, but it's worth doing a a self-check for us today. do Do we try to bargain with God? God, I, I know I didn't study as much for that exam as I should have. But, oh, Lord, if you would come in some miraculous way right now, I promise I will be in church every Sunday next month. Lord, we're really behind on our bills. I don't know. We do not have the cash we need. But, Lord, if you would just help me win the lottery, I promise to give the first 10% back to the church. That's bargaining with God. Uh, that, that's, and, and isn't it pretty, it, we do that, it's, it's easy to see it's pathetic here in the moment, but, but when, you know, when we're in the middle of it, you know, it's an emergency, it's a crisis, we're, we're panicking, we're, we're, we're grasping for anything, any kind of uh, uh, leverage to, to make something happen. It's pretty pathetic, though, that we think we can make a deal with God, as though if we just offer him enough, he'll, he'd give in and do something that he really doesn't want to do. And it's, it's really, think about it, it's really insulting when we offer to do for him what we owe him anyway, or promise to do what we could never possibly follow up on, like, if you just help me this once, God, I'll never doubt you again, brother. Don't pray like that. Understand, Hannah is not trying to leverage God. I could, if I could just find a, a point of weakness or a soft spot in God, uh, that's uh, t- to get him to do something he doesn't want to do. She, she wasn't using her tears to manipulate him. She wasn't refusing to eat uh, as if she's pouting, or, or even this, as if fasting is just another way to twist God's arm. Her, her weeping, her, her refusing to eat was her agony. And the vow that she makes fits this way. Imagine Hannah praying something along these lines. God, God, here I am again, another year, and I'm praying again like I prayed all year, every year. I want a child. I don't think that's a wrong thing to ask for. God, you made me a woman. You made me with these natural desires And I understand with the world like it is, things just don't work right. But why me? Okay, why not me? I know that, but can can you imagine those lips moving? You know, again, she's, no, no, this was not just a, uh, our Father who art in heaven. She is having a conversation with God. She is is going, and and that's why, like, is this this lady okay? Think about her prayer continuing. God, I... I don't know how this fits in your plan to rescue your people. I just, know, I just know you're a good God, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You owe nothing to me. Everything I have is, from you is grace. So, if, if it be your will, 
if you would so choose, if it could possibly be in your plan, if you would be so kind to give me a son, if you would take away my disappointment and my shame, I tell you now that I will turn around and give that gift back to you. And what was that going to look like? Well, back in verse 11, at the end there, it said, she said, and no razor will touch his head, which might sound like, well, what? What's, where did that come from? She's referring to something you see in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Uh, part of the law of Moses included guidelines for a Nazarite vow. Nazarite just simply means somebody separated or consecrated to God. And you could, uh, as a as a believer in God, people, one of the people, God's people, you could say, I, I'm, for, for this time, I'm going to be especially devoted, dedicated to God, and during this time, I'm, I'm not going to cut my hair, I'm not going to, some part of the rules were, I'm not going to uh, drink any alcohol, I'm not going to touch any dead body, I'm going to remain pure and devoted to God. And Again, part of that was not cutting the hair. So that's, that's the link here for the razor cutting his head. Now, you probably know another biblical character who was dedicated in this way, right? Samson, uh, famous for his, his long hair. Now, Samuel, Samuel, the guy in this story, would not have the strength of Samson, but he did have the hair. So, we, you know, as we go through the story, I got a picture. Samson's got, you know, he's got a, some good flow going, and I don't know how he wore it, but that's, that, was, that was not a matter of style or fashion. It was a sign of his lifelong devotion to God. And, and, and that's clear. Samuel is not just dedicated to God for a certain period of time, but for the rest of his life. Don't, don't be confused by the wording of verse 28 where Hannah says, I have lent him to the Lord as if Samuel is, you know, on loan to God, but, you know, Hannah wants him back. She makes it clear many times, verse 11, all the days of his life. Verse 22, his, her son will dwell there forever in the presence of God. Verse 28, as long as he lives. This child was a gift from God, and the most fitting response was to give the child back to him. Not because she didn't love her son, not because she didn't want to watch him grow up through his, his awkward junior high years and then into, into being a teenager and seeing him launch out on his own. That, that, not because she didn't want that. Not because she didn't love her son, but because she knew the Lord was the God from whom all blessings flow. So again, if we can put it another way, this doesn't mean that if you're here this morning and you really want a child or you really want to be married or you really want something else, promise God, if you want that child, promise God, I'll raise him to be a missionary or something. Really what this points to, it really points to every parent, every child and beyond, because everything we have is grace. Everything we have is a gift. In fact, Hannah's name means gracious one or favored one. So when she says in verse 19, let your servant find favor in your eyes, there's a little play on her own name. It's, it's I'm, 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 the gra- I'm gracious one, and let, let me find grace in your eyes. And she finds grace from the Lord. But that's true for you. If you, in some sense, if you have been redeemed, if you've been blessed by God, you are a Hannah. You are you are a one who has been favored. You have been are one who has received grace. And so the call is, when when the call uh, that Jesus gives to come follow me, lay, lay aside everything and come follow me. Give up what you have. 
and give everything you have, give all that you are to me, trust all that you are to me. It's not really anything different than we see here. Give up your spouse, give up your children, your home, your career, your dreams and desires, give them back to God. You won't have to necessarily surrender them, uh, put them away from you like Hannah did. But there should be an understanding that everything I have came from you, God. Everything I have is yours for the asking. Everything I have is at your disposal. That's going on when she says, she calls his name Samuel, I have asked for him from the Lord. And when she says in verse 28, as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, there is another kind of in the Hebrew, a play on the words, he is, God, he's yours for the asking. He is, he's at your, uh, you've given me what I requested, he is yours by request. That's Samuel. That's us. See, when we, you might think, well, why should I pray and ask God for stuff, for dreams, for a good job, for a, a, a better lot in life? Why ask for stuff if I have to give it back? Well, the point is this. Even our unmet desires, our heartaches and longings need to come under this view of a sovereign and gracious God. When we release those desires and the, an, and the answers to our prayers, we find a connection to God and our part in his bigger story. See, the reason we have the story at all is not just so that we have a lesson on prayer. It's because Hannah's son Samuel becomes a great prophet, the last of a long line of judges in Israel, and the one who will anoint Israel's king. First Saul, then David, the one who would begin the line who would end, in some sense, in the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ, our king, our savior. This is about, this is really all about God saving his people. But what a lesson it is that we have this particular story, that God's plan to bless, his greater plan of redemption, God's plan to bless often hinges on the prayers of the brokenhearted. That, that doesn't mean that God's any less in charge, that his plans are any less settled, that there's kind of up in the air. He's waiting for us to see, what are they going to do? What are they going to ask me for? Let's see what we can do today. It's that his plans to bless, his plans to redeem, his plans to save, he weaves into those plans all the prayers of his broken-hearted people who trust him in his covenant faithfulness. And, and we, so we wonder, what might God want to do in your life? What might God want to do through this church? What might God want to do in our world if God's people prayed? If we just asked. You have not because you ask not. Do you feel barren and broken? Do we know the Lord of hosts? Weep and fast and pray. And then we will see what one writer said. This passage teaches us that the true power is to be found not in one's position in society, but in one's posture before God. Are we ready to kneel? Let's pray. Oh God, help us. Help the barren and the broken. 
for the people who, perhaps in this room, who have, have given up on your blessing, for the people who are struggling even now to wonder why we feel cursed. Would you come and favor us? Would you give us your grace? We're here today because you have promised us so many things in Christ. We have laid hold of that relationship with you. You are our God. We are your people. So don't, don't leave us high and dry now. And we're praying because we believe you won't do that. And so we're asking. And in some ways, we don't even know what to ask. We don't know what you're going to do just as, just as much as Hannah didn't know what all you were going to do through Samuel. But we do know where we're at. We know where, how we hurt. We know that we're confused. We know that it's, a, it's not easy to hold our suffering and your sovereignty together, but we're, we're just, we're just going to dump it out all at your feet. All our confusion, all our pain, all our fears and anxieties about the future, we're going to dump it all out, and God, we pray that you would form from this mess something beautiful, something powerful, something that shows us who you are in a new way, that shows the world who you are. God, we want this to be not just about us in this room. We want this to be about the future, generations yet unborn. We want it to be about the world, the, the, the so many lost and dying without Christ. We want you to do a work that extends beyond this moment, but we're, we're saying this to, right now and perhaps prayer meetings that we'll have this week and coming Sundays where we gather that, that your plan in some way will hinge on the prayers of your brokenhearted people. God, do it. And we pray even for the grace to take what you give and give it all back to you. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.